traveling tends to knock me out and make me loopy. So if my talk is loopy, that's my excuse. (laughs) I'd like to talk tonight about something that's very fundamental to the practice. And I hope the word fundamental doesn't scare you off. Buddhist fundamentalists (laughs) are very different from other kinds of fundamentalists. Um, We don't try to cut off debate by bombing buildings or threatening liberal judges. Um, In fact, we actually encourage inquiry. Um, And basically, we simply ask people to look at their actions and the consequences of their actions. Um, And this means trying to understand what is the nature of action? What are the capabilities? What is human action capable of? I'm referring here to the, the doctrine of karma. When I first went to study with my teacher in Thailand, there was one evening when I brought up the whole issue of rebirth with him. And he said, when you practice meditation, there's only one thing you're asked to believe. He said, you believe in karma. And what he meant by that was, one, that action is real. When you act, it actually is, there is an action going on. It's not something unreal. Secondly, that you're responsible for your actions. It's not some outside force, it's not the gods, it's not stars acting through you. And that the action has consequences. It has an effect. It's not like drawing a line in the water to only to have it disappear. And the effects of your actions do color the whole of your experience. And particularly the, the quality, the intention behind the action is what, influence, what shapes that effect. Normally, you think that this would be a a doctrine or a belief that a lot of people would like to hear because it places your life in your hands. Um, And as I said, in Buddhist teachings, not only with my teacher, you go back and you look in the suttas. The the Buddha said the beginning of right view is belief in the doctrine of karma. When the early Buddhists were trying to define their teaching as opposed to other teachings that were available in in India at the time, they defined it in terms of what they taught about human action as opposed to what other people taught about human action. Um, in other words, there were some beliefs in those times that one, as I said, action was unreal, or there was some God acting through you that determined everything in your life, or that um, <coughs> the consequences were ritualistic. You had to do a ritual formula right. If you got the ritual formula right, then everything was okay. Didn't, your intention didn't matter. And these are all things that the Buddha rejected. Um, And as I said, the early Buddhists thought that it was once you establish the difference of what the Buddha taught about karma as opposed to what the other people taught about karma, you you would see the radical difference what really set Buddhism apart from the other teachings. Um, So throughout the history of Buddhism in Asia, karma has been fundamental. It's the defining teaching. Coming to America, though, you begin you see that a lot of people reject the idea. Um, many times you'll see books on Buddhism that don't even mention karma. Um, what's been especially interesting for me is that there's actually an attack on karma, that karma is not only non-essential to Buddhism, but also that it's um, anti-Buddhist, non-Buddhist teaching. And I've been reading a number of books that make this case, and it's basically a campaign of disinformation. So 
they're, they're declaring war on Buddhism and they're doing it by di- spreading disinformation. So I'd like to re-inform you a little bit about some of the teachings on what the Buddha taught about karma and why it really is a necessary teaching to understand and to take to heart and why it's not as scary as it may seem at first, first glance. The attack on karma usually comes in one of four ways. One, that people will attack the content of the belief, exactly what the, the belief says. Secondly, they'll attack it on the basis of its provenance, basically asserting that it really didn't come from the Buddha, or if it did come from the Buddha, the Buddha was being careless because he picked up a few ideas that were sloshing around in India during his time and happened to get tacked on to his teachings where they really don't belong. The third type of attack is attacking the whole idea of having a belief in Buddha's practice, anyhow. And the fourth is attacking your motives for wanting to believe in karma. Why someone wouldn't believe in karma is it's basically suspect motivation. So I'd like to go down these four categories, the content, provenance, the status as a belief, and the motives for believing, and sort of take the take it apart and see exactly what the war on karma is saying. In terms of content, one of the main objections to karma is that it's deterministic. That leaves no will for no room for free will and actually justifies a lot of evil, justifies the status quo where it really shouldn't be the way it is. Um, This is based on a misunderstanding of what the Buddha meant by the teaching of karma or how causality functions in the Buddhist teachings. The Buddha himself attacked the idea that everything in your life is shaped by the past or by your past actions. Your present experience, what you're sitting here experiencing right now, is actually made up of three things. It's the results of past actions. Secondly, it is actions you are doing right now. And then the third is the results of what you're doing right now. So actually three things coming together. And the results of the past actions are only one of the three. Because after all, karma in the Buddhist teaching is intention. And intention is working in your mind all the time right now. Some of your intentions you're aware of and some of them you're not. But it's your intentions that are shaping what you're experiencing. The Buddha said that basically the things you see, the, the fact that you have your senses, the fact that there are things coming in through your senses, that's the impact from past karma. But what you do with those things is your present karma. And that's, that's really, that, that's where there, there's room for free will. Like you're sitting here, you could look at me, you could not look at me. You could listen, you could not listen. You can select what you want to listen to. It's up to you. You've got the choice. This is totally free. So the Buddha never taught that things were deterministic. So some of the, the accusations against Buddhism, that, that against the doctrine of karma, for instance, the idea that in determinism, let's say that you know I killed somebody in a previous lifetime, that's going to force somebody to kill me in this lifetime. That's not a Buddhist teaching. He was saying the fact that maybe say I killed somebody in the previous lifetime, that will tend to have that kind of effect on my experience but it doesn't necessitate that somebody's going to have to kill me. I might die in in an accident. I might die at a very young age um, for other reasons. But it's not necessarily that what you do is going to have to come back to you. The Buddha said, if you believe that, there's no way to put an end to suffering. Because how are you going to clear the ledger? All the people you've wronged, you've got to get wronged by them before you get an awakening. You You never come to an end of it. 
I'm not saying that to put you down. Okay? <laughs> so he's saying that the actions from the past have an impact of that sort, but it's not necessary that you're going to get precisely that effect coming back. And he made a huge made huge room for, as he said, your state of mind right now. The impact that you get from a past action. Suppose it was something negative that you did. He said, if you have an attitude of unlimited goodwill, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy or appreciation for other people, even if it was something that was very negative you did in the past, you might hardly experience it at all. So it's not the case that everything you did in the past is going to have to come back to you. There's your present state of mind has a huge impact on how you experience things. The analogy he gave there was the difference between placing a, say you've got a crystal of salt about this big, and if you put it in a glass of water, the question is, can you drink the water? No. If you put it in a river, can you drink the water out of the river, assuming that it's not otherwise polluted? Um, yes, you can, because the, the amount of water is so much greater. He says, you know, if you develop your mind through meditation, then the effects of the past get like the crystal of salt in the river, as opposed to the crystal of salt in the glass of water. So he's not teaching that everything is determined by the past. Your present input has a lot of, lot of impact on that. And because of this, it, karma does not justify the status quo. It does not justify evil actions. And suppose somebody becomes king or becomes, or what's similar, when, what's equivalent to that in America right now, you become president. It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Just because you've gotten there doesn't mean that you're going to have the right from your karma to stay there for all of your eight years. Something might happen in the meantime. So this karma is not a, a doctrine that justifies the status quo. Things have been the way they are. There's an explanation, but it doesn't mean that things will always have to continue to be that way. There's always room for change. Down in San Diego, we just had our mayor resign you know, out, of the, out of the blue. So just because he won that election, or sort of won the election, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean he's going to stay for four years. And you look at, someone once said that you know, the doctrine of karma was designed to please kings, right? basically justify while they're there. Well, if you look at the actions of Buddhist kings in the past, they always know that you know, the, the, you know, the whatever merit they have in the past that made them king could run out at any time. And so you have a lot of actions by kings in order to, what can I do in order to maintain this? Because it could, could, the good karma could run out and then who knows where they're going to fall after they go. So it's not justifying the status quo or saying that the status quo has to say the way it is. It's also not justifying evil. It's one of the arguments against karma is that it's deterministic. The se- another argument against karma is that given the doctrine of not-self, how does karma make sense? And if there is no self, then who's doing the action? Who's receiving the action? Um, what's there for continuity? That's getting the context backwards. The Buddha started with the teaching on karma first and then came up with the doctrine of not-self not in the context of karma. In other words, he said, people act. You can see that for sure. Now the question of, create, of the doctrine of not-self, well, how does that fit into the way people act? And it turns out that, it, as the Buddha said, our sense of self is something we do. It's a type of karma. You create your sense of yourself. You create the sense of what you are. You create your sense of what belongs to you. It's a type of action. And the question is, is it a skillful action? 
Is it going to create suffering or is it not going to create suffering? And it turns out his answer there is very interesting. It's sometimes yes, sometimes no. (laughs) He was no dummy. (laughs) There are times when you have a sense of self-responsibility. Your sense of self is a useful thing. Because it makes you, again, look at your actions and you're very careful about, okay, if, if I control the way my life is going to be, I better be careful about what I do. This is a very useful sense of self. If the results of my meditation depend on what I do, I should be careful about what I do. Again, this is another skillful way of use, use of the sense of self. He says there are times, however, when you get to the way you create a sense of self that's going to be unskillful, and that's when you start using the teaching on not-self, taking that idea of self apart to see where it's an unskillful kind of action. So in other words judging that the teaching on karma in the context of the teaching on not-self is getting things backwards. You have to take the the doctrine of karma as the fundamental teaching, and then how does the teaching on not-self function within that? And you find that makes a lot of sense, because yes, you look at the way you, especially when you meditate, you begin to see that your sense of who you are is something you create time and again and again and again. And because you see it as a creation, that means that you notice when it's unskillful, then you can make changes. It's not that you, yourself is something that's thrust on you or that's been imposed on you from outside or something that you can't change. It is something you can change for the better. So in that sense, it's a, it's a liberating teaching. So those are two of the main complaints about karma in terms of the teaching and, and in, the, in terms of its content. In terms of its provenance, the idea that the Buddha simply picked up ideas of karma that were sloshing around India at the time and they got tacked onto his teaching, that doesn't hold up to scrutiny because if you actually look at what was being taught in, in India in the time of the Buddha, all kinds of things were being said about the possibility of human action. There are some people who believed in rebirth, there are a lot of people who did not believe in rebirth. People believe that karma, as I said earlier, was ritualistic. This is the Vedas. They said if you follow the Vedic ritual, you know, the way it's supposed to be done, then you're guaranteed a place in heaven. If you slip a syllable, well, we've got a special chant that will make that okay. They're extremely very ritualistic. It depends on entirely what you do, what you say. Your mental intention is not important. There was a group called the Jains who said that all action is produces suffering and therefore the best course of action is not to do anything. And ultimately they ended up with slow death by starvation. (laughs) Really. (laughs) You can't laugh about Indian religion because every crazy thing you might imagine is being done in India and still is being done there today. Someplace. So it's not the case that because there were beliefs on karma in India at the time, it doesn't mean that the Buddha simply picked up the idea that was there in Indian culture. There are many different ideas that were there. And he basically tested them in his, in his practice and discovered the one that worked for putting an end to suffering, which is seeing the action as the intention. The intention is the action. The quality of the intention determines the result of the action. Okay, this places action within the mind, and it's also in a place where you, you're responsible for what you can do. In terms of karma as a belief, um, this is this is attacked in two ways. One, 
there's a statement that Buddhism is not something you believe, it's something that you do. Well, think about that for a minute. Buddhism is very much something that you do, therefore your beliefs about human action are very important. In other words, your beliefs about what you do are going to make a difference about what you do. So it's a false dichotomy. If you believe that human action is only, has only limited capabilities, that's going to determine what you do. If you believe that your actions are shaping your experience as a whole, and that it's also possible through your actions to put an end to suffering, okay, that's going to change what you do, give you a different sense, give you a different perspective on your actions. So what you believe about the nature of human action is very important if you're going to do anything. If you believe that you're not responsible for what you do or the world is totally deterministic, you're not going to go out and put out an effort. You say, well, effort is, doesn't make any difference, so why bother? If, however, you believe that your actions are important, you're going to be a lot more careful. And you're also going to be a lot more willing to put effort into your practice, to push the limits, to see, well, how far can I take this? So the idea that Buddhism is something that you do rather than something you believe is a false dichotomy. It makes a false distinction. The other attack on karma as a belief is the statement that the Buddha once said that all of his, all of his teachings have to be proven empirically. And our idea of proven empirically is to say you can, look at the, you can look right here in the present moment and see, okay, yes, this must be true. There's, there's empirical belief that people, say, experience rebirth or can remember their past lives. And you don't see a lot of that. Therefore, because karma can't be empirically proven, therefore it must not be a genuine teaching. The Buddha never said that his teachings had to be empirically proven. He said they had to be pragmatically proven, which is a very different thing. It's a subtle difference, but very different. In other words, he said, if you take this particular teaching, and this applies to all of his teachings, and you put it into practice, what happens? That's the test. That's different from an empirical proof. Okay, this means that one, on the, on the one hand, you have, you have to test yourself. You have to be willing to take a gamble. Well, let's try this and then see what happens. And if you take the teaching on karma and you put it into proof what hap- and put it to the test, what happens? You say, take this as a working hypothesis. If my actions are important, what does that do to my actions? What does that do to the attitude of my actions? What does it do to how early I wake up in the morning? What I do in the morning? What I do before I go to bed? You begin to see that it shapes all the things you do. You're a lot more careful about what you do. And when you're more careful about what you do, in terms of what you say, what you think, what you do, you'll begin to see the results in your life. Say that you make up your mind, okay, I'm going to, the Buddha says, okay, the truth of my words is important. Okay, I'm going to try to be truthful in everything I say. You find, on the one hand, life is a lot easier. You don't have to remember who you lied to or what lies you said. <laughs> and also, secondly, you find people believe you more. Your words are going to carry more weight. Right there, you begin to see the results of believing in the power of your actions. And he says, you carry this through. Ultimately, you find that through your powers of reactions, yes, you can put an end to suffering. I mean, that's the ultimate proof. Up to that point, it's, you know, as I said, it's a working hypothesis. hypothesis. But there will come a point where, okay, through your actions, you find that you reach the end of action and 
you arrive at the end of suffering. So that's where you've basically completed the pragmatic proof of the doctrine of karma. That yes, that your suffering, that yes, your suffering is due to your actions, and because you change your actions, you can put an end to it. That's the ultimate proof. So for for the Buddha, it's it's no problem that you've got a belief. Some people say that it's more honest to say I don't know rather than to assert a belief. But the Buddha said you've got to believe something if you're going to act. And therefore, you've got to look at what kinds of beliefs you might have about action, which ones seem to offer the most hope for putting an end to suffering. And then you apply this principle of the pragmatic proof. Go around for a week believing that okay, my actions don't make any difference. See what happens as a result of that. Go around for a while saying, okay, my actions are important. They really do shape my life. See what happens as a result there. That's the kind of proof that the Buddha encouraged. Take a working hypothesis and follow it through. Finally, the final attack on karma is <coughs> the attack on the motives for why anybody would want to believe in this. It basically comes down to two. Uh, well, basically, one is that it's, it's a reversion to childishness. On the one hand, we want something that's consoling, and somehow the doctrine of karma is supposed to be consoling. I don't find it all that consoling all the time. Secondly, it comes down to the desire we want to see the world as a fair place. This goes again back to our childish idea that, you know, I beat up my little brother, I get punished. You know, my other brother beats up my little brother for some reason. Our parents don't see it, and he doesn't get punished. Well, someplace has got to be someplace so that where this works out, that there's a fair and just reckoning. Um, well, one. How many people do you know would really like to see the world as a fair place? Totally impartially fair. We would all prefer to have a special in on whoever's deciding these things. (laughs) The idea that it's totally impartial is kind of scary. (laughs) Secondly, the Buddha never said that everything works out fairly. I mean, if things were really fair, you do something bad, immediately lightning strikes. You know. That would be fair. You know. <laughs> do something good and there's a reward right away. And the idea of having to wait for another lifetime, that's, that's kind of discouraging. And also he never says that, that the idea that everybody gets what they deserve. Basically, he's saying it's not a, ma- a matter of people getting what they deserve. It's saying that a particular action will have a particular type of result. That's different from saying that people get what they deserve. It's a more impersonal thing. It, this action got set into motion. Maybe some further time way down the line, you've changed. You're a different person now. You used to be cruel and nasty. You used to beat up on your little sister. And now you're a social worker and you're counseling people who beat up on their little sisters. You're a different person, you know. And yet somehow the karma of that action catches up with you. Now, do you really deserve it at this time? The question is, well, maybe not really. But still, there may be the result of that action is an impersonal thing. That action set a a system of causes and effects into motion, and now it's finally bearing fruit, which is very different from saying that people get what they deserve. It's a much more impersonal. It doesn't take people as the basic unit. It takes actions as the basic unit in life. 
This is one of the reasons where karma is, is not all that consoling. It's a little bit alienating. You know, you've, you've set some actions into, 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 you know, sort of set them into motion. And you're not quite sure when they're going to come back. And that's very different from saying that you're going to get what you deserve. Secondly, the idea that um, just clinging to beliefs in general is a childish thing. If you're going to act, which is what something we're doing all the time, you have to have a particular kind of belief. It's not childish. And as I said, that the teaching on karma, there's nobody up there looking out for us. I mean, if you want a consoling belief where you don't have to be responsible or where you can be complacent, you want to believe in an outside power. Karma doesn't let you be complacent. Because each action, I mean, the, the, the law of karma is not a park, parking law. I mean, it's, you have these signs that say, no parking, you know, Tuesday afternoons, Thursday afternoons, between 4.30 and 6. Karma is 24-7. <laughs> Which means that you can't be complacent any time. So it's not necessarily a consoling belief or the kind of belief that you want to sort of curl up with at night. Um, what else do I have here? And again, the, the Buddhists say you're not believing it simply because you want to see a just universe. He says the reason he, he proposes for the motivation that he proposes for believing in karma, he says only through believing in this type of karma that your actions do set the cause of effects into motion. And it's a generally a, a fairly predictable set of causes, you know, that a, a type of action will set into motion a, a certain type of results. There's enough pattern in there that you can actually begin to make decisions about what kind of action you want to make. At the same time, there is always an element of free will. You can always change your mind. You can always put something new into the causal pattern. This combination of a pattern that's not totally chaotic, but at the same time not deterministic, he says, this is the only type of belief of action that makes it possible to put an end to suffering. He says, if you have any kind of belief of action, if you really took any other kind of belief of, about the nature of human action, you really took it seriously, it would be impossible to put an end to suffering. That's the motivation, he says, that underlies why he would recommend taking his teachings on karma and taking them seriously and giving them a serious try. When you look at your life, would you like to see an end to suffering? I mean, most of our actions anyhow are aimed at at least maximizing as much happiness as we can. So if you can believe in this type of action, that this is the, these are the patterns that underlie the nature of human action, it makes possible the path to put an end to suffering. That, he says, is the motivation that should underlie why you take this particular teaching and give it a try. So in terms of its content, in terms of its provenance, in terms of its status as a belief, and in terms of your motivation for wanting to believe it. Okay. Um, there are good reasons for seeing why this really is fundamental to the practice. It's fundamental to any kind of practice is putting an end to suffering. It's, he's not deterministic. It's not something that was just picked up. You know, that some happened, somehow happened to get packaged into Buddhism when they were being careless, when they were sending the package here to America. <laughs> they have to throw this in and they say, whoops, well, never mind. <laughs> That's not how it happened. This, this is intrinsic to the whole path. 
And you'll see this when you sit and meditate. Your mind wanders off. Can you say that the wandering off of your mind is the result of past actions? Okay, you have the choice. Am I going to go with it or am I not going to go with it? That's your present karma. You can bring it back. If everything were totally determined, you know, you're bringing it back or not bringing it back wouldn't matter because it wouldn't have any effect. But it does have an effect. And it's precisely this, what you're doing in the present moment. This is why the present moment is an important moment. Because you always have the choice now to put something new and better into the system. So this is, um, so this is Buddhist fundamentalism. Gives you the power, but at the same time it says, okay, these, this is a, take this as a working hypothesis, test it, give it the pragmatic test, and put it into put it into practice for a while, and see what happens. And the Buddha said, and if you're really seriously about putting it into practice, you will find that it makes your life better. So we're a friendly fundamentalist. You know? We're not going to blow out your buildings. Um, and basically we say ask, but ask, okay, if you're going to be asked, be serious about how you ask. One of the other comments I, I've heard attacking the idea of having a belief in karma is that it's somehow more noble to not have beliefs and it's more noble to be an agnostic. Well, the Buddhists say, okay, put your money where your mouth is, okay? Try this. Commit yourself to it for a while and see what happens. It's, it's not an easy thing to commit yourself to this particular teaching. That every time, every time you make a choice, it's going to have consequences. But after a while, you begin to see it does make your life better. So it's a different kind of belief. It's not the kind of belief that asks you not to ask questions. I, re- I was reading an interesting article a while back. Uh, a woman had gone to see the movie Kinsey. And she was recalling the fact that when she was very young, she had actually been interviewed by Kinsey. And this was back back in the late 50s, early 60s. And her her telling of the story was interesting. And she went into the room where he was uh, where he was interviewing people, and he asked her certain questions about her sexual habits. And she said that was back in the days when I had no sexual habits. Um, I was still too young (laughs) and innocent. And she felt she felt kind of um, embarrassed that all her, for all of his questions, he, she said, "Well, no, 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 I don't do that. No, I don't do that either." And then he thanked her very kindly, and she left. And so then she, this, you know, recently she went to see the movie, and the question came up into her mind: Well, you know, does the man Kinsey in the movie have any relationship to the man that interviewed her 30, 40 years ago? She said she had no idea because all she knew of him was the man she met in, the, in, in that room for a period of about 10-15 minutes. But she said what he, what he did in that room had a big effect on her. Because she grew up in a generation where our, the previous generation would always say, don't ask. You ask about this, you ask about that, the response was always, don't ask. And here was somebody who was asking, politely. And it made it okay to ask. And she said for that, she found that liberating. And for the rest of her life, she learned, okay, I'll ask. She goes to the movie Kinsey, she comes out, and there was somebody out there handing out literature about what the horrible things that Kinsey had done, and quoting some well-known author saying that certain things should stay in the closet and should not come out of the closet. And that's, you know, that's the don't ask attitude coming back. And she said she wanted to ask this woman, well, you know, why are you handing out this literature? Is it because of your religious beliefs? Is it because something that some, some horrible sexual experience you had? 
Um, and she looked at the woman. She said to herself, don't ask. I <laughs> 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 <And> left. <laughs> so that's one kind of fundamentalism. Buddhist fundamentalism says ask, but also says ask yourself, okay? Every time you're going to act, okay? Ask yourself, why am I acting? What do I believe about the possibility of this action? And that kind of asking is very healthy. So those are my thoughts on on karma, on the war on karma. So I was wondering if you had any questions or comments or questions. Yes. You started off uh, up talking about past lives and that mm-hmm. discussion. I was mm-hmm. wondering. Um, I was raised a Christian, and there were a lot of things there that that I was supposed to believe that I never. I tried for a while and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I'm, I really find a hard time with in Buddhism is the past lives thing. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. how much of karma can one is useful and can one use without without the past life, the the belief or the understanding mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. past lives. Well, again, the Buddha doesn't ask you to believe in these things, but give it a try. Pardon? Give it a try. Take it as a working hypothesis for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's not be, it's not forcing you on this, but he says this is it's like when you go into a a laboratory, you have to have certain working hypotheses that you're going to test. And you're going to test this one. You don't you don't want to test this? You don't like the idea? I I've come to a, a somewhat of a global understanding of of what life, universe, and everything, the way the world works, mm-hmm. DNA, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. neocortex, evolution, and there's just no room in there for past lives. And, mm-hmm. and um, I really don't, I really can't see how to fit my global understanding in with the past lives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you don't want to try. But see what <laughs> happens. See what happens when you don't. Uh, see how far it can take you. I mean, yeah. That's all. That's all they're asking you to do. This feels very much like my earlier uh, upbringing of, well, just say that you believe and maybe one day... No, no, it's not saying that you believe, but give it a try. See, if, see if, would, it, would it make a difference in the way you act? Yes. Um, so I don't really understand, uh, for example, what might it look like if you gave that a try and you want to experiment with that for a while? Um, well... Say that you find that you're, you're, you're really drawn to doing something you know that you shouldn't do. And you say, but you know, I just want to give it a try. <laughs> and then you say, well, you know, maybe I've done this before. Because a lot of times you're, you're pulled to doing something because you say, oh, I'd be deprived if I don't do this. It's, it's a sense of deprivation. I think that's, that pulls a lot of people into particular actions. But if you say, well, you know, maybe I've done this before and it didn't really do anything for me. So maybe I'm not being deprived at all. That, that's, that's where it makes a difference. Yes? Um, most of the religions, uh, the standard religions, um, do help people in their lives they wouldn't uh, exist if, yeah. if they didn't give comfort. And um, so the, if the test of uh, the truth of 
of some uh, doctrine is does it make you your life better then there are all sorts of things that are uh, competing things I suppose mm-hmm. um, which do have this effect mm-hmm. I mean George Bush found Jesus and gave up drinking mm-hmm. um, but you know you to me it's very difficult to mm-hmm. to make that a test of the truth of something mm-hmm. it's I mean the ultimate test is when you put an end to suffering well that's certainly one uh, a good thing but uh, to some people uh, well <coughs> I was <coughs> trained in uh, physics and uh, whether it makes you feel better or not uh, has absolutely no bearing on whether something is true or not well it's not it's not whether something f- makes you feel better when we're talking about an absolute end to suffering you, f- you come across that there is a deathless element that's totally unconditioned, totally unfabricated, that lies outside of space and time. You can touch that through your meditation. That's the proof. And the type of teachings that you take into consideration in a physics lab, the sort of laws that you take into consideration and what you take into consideration is good results, are very different from, okay, how am I going to manage my mind? In the sense of... Is there some way that I can act that I'm actually not going to cause anybody any suffering, myself or anybody else? And that's an important question for the running of your own mind. This belief is necessary for you to act in this way? It's the belief that your actions are important, that will have an impact. Well, certainly that everyone would agree with that. Yeah. But uh, past lives would be a little controversial. Again, that I was, I was pushing him a little bit too hard on that one. I said, when, when the first question I raised to my teacher about past and future lives, he said, "Look, just look at your actions right now, and you know, take it seriously that the fact that your actions are going to have an important impact right now and on into the future, which is very different from what sometimes they say in physics or, or say astronomy says. Astronomy tells us the sun is going to go nova." And if you take that as, as an important thing in your life, you say, well, then re- basically what we do doesn't matter because you know, it's all going to get burned to a crisp someday anyhow. Well, but here's the thing. Look at your immediate actions and the impact you're having on the people around you and the impact you're having on yourself. This is the important area for testing and a truth that's going to guide your actions. You know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, a question way in the back. Can you describe more fully your understanding of what it is that is reborn? That's one of those questions the Buddha never answered. <laughs> he says there's a process. In fact, How do we talk about past lives if we can't talk about what it is that's reborn? When you have three or four dreams, what goes from one dream to the next? A question with another question. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Thank you. What you can see, though, is okay. how craving goes from one state of mind to the next state of mind. And if you can cut the craving, okay, you've, you've seen the process. You've done, you've done, again, the Buddha's teachings are very pragmatic. They're things that you can do. 
And he says, okay, this is how the process happens. There's craving that leads from one state of mind to the next state of mind, and it's precisely that that leads from one life to the next life. If you learn how to cut the craving, then you've solved the problem. And the Buddhist teachings are very much problem-solving kinds of teachings. He's not setting out, okay, this is, this is the nature of the world, and given the nature of the world, sort of the metaphysics out there, then this is how we negotiate our way through it. He said, this is the process of the mind. This is how the mind creates suffering. If you learn how to stop that process, then you've, you've solved the problem. And so he, one of the important things about learning how to solve problems is not cluttering up the problem with extraneous things that are not really essential for the solution. And that's one of the things he said is, un, is not essential for the solution. I was reading a book a while back about um, a hospital in, in Chicago where the, the director of the hospital was brought in. And he was noticing this was Cook County Hospital where you know there was anybody who didn't have insurance and people would go, all kinds of people would go there. And, and they had a very limited number of emergency rooms and intensive care units. A lot of people coming in reporting symptoms of heart attack. Now the question is, how do you figure out, given that you only have three or four rooms, how do you decide who really needs the room and who doesn't? And for years and years and years, most doctors have been kind of been going by the seat of their pants, you know, trying to figure out exactly which are the, um, the factors that are necessary or, or help you make that decision. And it turned out somebody years back had said, you know, there are only three or four things that really are a sign of a heart attack. One is, okay, first you take the, the, the measurement of the heart, was it EKG? EKG. EKG, you take the EKG, and then you look, okay, is there liquid in the, in the lungs? Is the, uh, I've forgotten the term, is it diastolic or systolic pressure? Which is the high one? Systolic. Systolic. If systolic is lower than 100, you've got a problem, okay? And if the pain is erratic, these are the three things you need to know. And the question is, does the person smoke? Does the person have a lot of stress in their lives? Which most doctors want to ask. Turns out those are irrelevant. And so the director said, well, let's try this. Nobody's, you know, the, the research was done, but nobody's ever really put it into, into practice. And so the doctor said, no, we've been you know, working on all these other factors as well all these years. And the director said, okay, for three years, let's continue doing it the way you've been doing it. And for the next three years, let's try it this other way, asking only those three questions. And then the results came out that doing it the way they've been doing it all those years, they had a 70% accuracy rate as to whether someone really was having a heart attack or they're just having indigestion or just whatever. And then when they put the other one into, into practice, it was a 96% accuracy rate. So the lesson from that is when you want to solve a problem, don't clutter up the issue. Okay, look at what really makes a difference and focus on that. And so the Buddha says, okay, if you can see how the process of going from one thought or one mental world to the next one, if you see that in action, it can learn how to put an end to that. It doesn't matter what's doing the going. You've stopped the process. That's the, the important thing. Any other questions? Yes. I mean, I can understand how relevant it is for this lifetime or whatever you are doing now throughout mm -hmm. your life. But again, I'm getting stuck with um, why is there 
the whole past life notion. Why is it there? Because your your actions are radically essential to everything you experience. And if okay, by basically what happens, the, you know, the the point where the mind reaches the deathless is where it totally stops acting. There's no present input of intention. Okay, once there's no present input, then everything else falls apart. Time and space fall apart. The lesson you draw from that is your experience of time and space is something that you create. Now you can't explain that for you know why is a baby born without there being some previous action. And if your experience is not totally dependent on your actions, then the fact that okay, you stopped acting, these things wouldn't fall apart. We're doing a lot more each present moment than we think we are. There are many, many more intentions that we're having. One of the purposes of meditation is to kind of peel that away, get our, get our awareness of our present intentions much more subtle so you can begin to see there's a lot of subtle decisions and subtle choices going on in the present moment. All of them come together, past actions plus present actions, to create your sense of space and time. If you take out the present intention, space and time are totally transcended. Now, if karma were not radically important for all your experience, that wouldn't happen. This is why the Buddha said that this particular doctrine of action is essential for for any kind of practice that would put a, uh, put an end to suffering. Why aren't the past actions limited to your 40, 50 years you have lived or whatever, and time zero of this birth to where you are, time T? Mm-hmm. Why do you have to go make that assumption of previous lives? I mean, there are past actions already in your life, and mm-hmm. I accept. I mean, that's a very mm-hmm. relevant and necessary hypothesis, mm-hmm. um, but why do I have to go to previous lives and I don't see the necessity of that? If you don't see the necessity, you don't have to do it. <laughs> 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 no one's forcing you. <laughs> it's just, keep an open mind about it, okay? I mean, I personally see, don't see how DNA disproves rebirth or why it's in any way at odds. Keep an open mind, okay? <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, one thing that's helped me with with the rebirth thing is looking at my life today mm-hmm. and my life when I was two years old or four years old and I don't recognize myself. If I look at a picture of myself mm-hmm. at two, mm-hmm. you know, I could not say that's, you know, that's Bill. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet it is. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a continuity, you know, from two as a baby to a student to a teenager mm-hmm. on up the line. And I've sort of used that as my leap to either past lives or future lives because I'm different. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a very different person in, in certain stages of my life. Mm-hmm. 
um, would that be similar? Would, would that be a way of, of making a leap to past lives? Or yeah, you can use it as an analogy. The proof doesn't come until you've hit the deathless. But you can take it as an analogy. And this, this is one of the ways you can help keep an open mind on the topic. That it's not totally crazy, not some stupid old musty belief that's being forced on us in the modern world. I mean, whatever you find that helps you keep an open mind is a useful teaching. But the proof doesn't come until do you see, oh yeah, I mean, there really is an end to suffering when you stop your present intentions. And it's, it's not that you intend to stop your present intentions, because of course that's another intention, but when through the practice of the meditation it finally does actually come to a point where there is no intention. And then things open up in a radically different way. I mean, there are lots of analogies. The, the one I like is the dream. You know, you have one dream, and then you have another dream, and then you have another dream. And where did you go from dream to dream? And what went from one dream to the next dream? Well, it didn't go anywhere. It just was right here. You know? And where are you going to experience the, your next life? You're going to experience it right here. You don't have to ask the, sort of the metaphysical question of, you know, what's the little homunculus that goes from here to the next one? But the analogies don't prove anything. They just kind of help open your mind. Yes, Olivia. You to the question you just answered to uh, to the lady in front of you. When you go outside time and space, mm-hmm. is there action? Is it an active action? No, is it no. passive? It's. There comes a point where you reach a you reach a point in your meditation where you realize that it, any kind of intention is going to cause stress, and you're kind of cornered right there. And at that point, you just the intention drops. So you can't call it an action, but you've been acting in a particular way to get yourself to that point. But that, at that point, there is no action. How does it what? How, how does that record within yourself so that you can either play it out again or not? Or is there no need for that? There's no need for that. But you do remember how you got there. And you remember it was based on following this path of you know where you're very conscious of your choices. Which is, wh- which is why a you know, teaching on the nature of human action has to be fundamental to the practice. Because you realize it wasn't some god, it wasn't some sort of outside power coming in. And it didn't happen without your own effort. You remember that. And then you remember the precisely the path that you took. That's what you recall. Time up? Time's up. So thank you for your attention.